0: This is the American Medical Association's COVID-19 Update Podcast. This is part of an ongoing series featuring critical insights from the physicians and healthcare professionals on the front lines of the pandemic. Hello, this is the American Medical Association's COVID-19 Update Video and Podcast. Today, we're talking with Dr. David Rubin director of Policy Lab at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and a professor of pediatrics at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. He's going to be talking to us about new guidance on a K-12 educational settings aimed at keeping kids in school. I'm Todd Unger, AMA's Chief Experience Officer in Chicago. Dr. Rubin, keeping kids in school. You're gonna make a lot of the people that I work with very happy. A lot of parents out there. This has obviously been a huge problem, but before we dive in, I just wanna start with a little bit of background about a model uh, on COVID-19, a forecasting model that you and your team developed. It got national attention and it's informed this whole discussion about kids in school. Why don't we just start with a little background on what that was?
1: Well, even before the uh, the COVID pandemic, Todd, I mean, we we uh, at Policy Lab, particularly my research area, focused on the variation in outcomes we saw from kids who were receiving public programs around the country, including home visiting services, psychiatric services, et cetera. And when, when COVID began, uh, if you remember, the early models focused on what was going to happen to us as a country, and still largely today, when you, when you Google COVID rates, you'll, you'll find national case curves from which to judge. And we knew very early on, given our experience with children and families, that everything was local. And so we leveraged our expertise in modeling local area variation to examine the experience, in what has now been over 820 counties across the country and providing that local granular experience with very sophisticated forecasts that we redo uh, each week. We've been able to get uh, about two to three weeks out ahead of where the pandemic was going in very local communities across the country. And and that's been uh, been very helpful for folks both at the local level, but also at the regional and, and national level as well too.
0: I have to be, I mean, honestly, uh, you point out the exact problem, which is like we look at these U.S. case curves, but we know uh, in each of these surges, and especially now that it's kind of sweeping across the country at different rates and receding in some places, picking up in others. Uh, So having that kind of, uh, we'll call it a three-week crystal ball, uh, is probably pretty important. And I think it would be able to inform you know, these issues of kind of uh, around guidance for school. So let's talk a little bit about how uh, how this does inform uh, remote versus in-person schooling. Obviously, I think many people have come to the conclusion that in-person is uh, preferred and better for kids learning. Talk to us about how your work then informs decisions, provides guidance to that.
1: Well, those case incidence models, that and now we also include hospitalization models. They're really only one part of a larger uh, picture. We have a big schools team that includes some of our best infectious disease experts as well as public health experts uh, within CHOP and, and at the university. Uh, but what we emphasize, you know, in our review is what the entirety of the data. Is showing us and you know last year or particularly early um in the COVID pandemic we it was like choosing between bad and worse we had a highly virulent virus an unvaccinated public the risk within families and to, and to individuals who who taught in our schools and uh, provided services in our schools was fairly substantial the first turning point happened when adults were offered vaccination in the country. Uh, That was a big turning point because the risk of serious illness was always lower in children. It was significant enough to warrant concern and significant strategies in these congregate settings of schools. But then by the fall, we were now offering all children five and above vaccination. So in the K to 12 setting, by the time we hit January, which was a really anxiety-provoking moment because of the Omicron, we had already kind of passed the threshold of offering vaccination, which has been the best intervention to reduce severe disease. Now, with Omicron, while that was a curveball, I, I would say, though, that what we saw overall, even despite some higher rates of kids being in the hospitals because so many children were infected all at once, we had it as more than 25% in our own region just during, uh, in the week between Christmas and New Year's it was milder on average for most children. The spectrum of illness we were seeing at CHOP was similar to what we see with other seasonal viruses during the winter time. And once we saw that shift, it wasn't just Policy Lab, but our leadership at CHOP that decided to issue a statement that said, look, once we recognize that that individuals have been offered vaccination and we're dealing with a variant that has a milder spectrum of illness for most, particularly those who are vaccinated, It's time to start hitting reset on the way we think about schools and return to policies that are more practical and simpler for schools that have been burdened throughout the pandemic.
0: So this, you know, a lot of the talks we've had over the past couple of weeks have kind of shifted to this new kind of paradigm at which this is consistent, which is, you know, are we entering kind of a new period of how to deal with this as a country from uh, eliminating risk, keeping infection rates down to something else? In your mind, what is the new goal?
1: Well, I think you know, what, what really differs between last year and this year is that you know, last year we had to be in an eliminate all risk type of strategy. Now we can accept that we can't eliminate risk and the risk of doing that uh, in terms of accepting that, that there will always be some risk um, is, you know, is, is a lot smaller. You know, with a virus that has a spectrum of illness, that's more, uh, more similar to what we see with other se- uh, seasonal viruses. Now the risk of keeping kids out of school, of denying them activities, of teaching them to continue sort of behaviors in school that are more avoidant, um, all of the above are much greater risks in terms of, of mental health, in terms of learning and access to education than the virus itself.
0: Medicine doesn't stand still, and at the AMA, neither do we. AMA members are physicians like you who are shaping the future of medicine. Become a member today and join the movement. Visit ama-assn.org/movingmedicine. So obviously, you know, the game has changed as you pointed out before with vaccinations and I think you hear a pretty widespread agreement that in-person schooling, if you can do that, is best. And and possibly even during this kind of a surge, um, why do you think there's still so much pushback and debate, consternation around this partic- particular topic? Is is it not grounded on science? Uh, what's what's the issue here?
1: Well, some of it is, and some of it, I think, is is the is a basis, uh, you know, of recognizing. Uh, just how much we've been traumatized over the last two years uh, around needing to eliminate as much risk as possible in our families. And so it's very hard after two years, in many ways of being trained to eliminate risk to kind of shift back to a strategy that's practical, which is six day home. um, If you're exposed, wear a mask, at least during periods of high transmission, and, you know, and move back to strategies that were very familiar to us before the COVID pandemic. And so some of it is, is helping to reset perceptions about the phase that we're in and recognizing the trauma we've been through. But that said, we also have to recognize there's some science to the basis, particularly in let's say larger urban areas of them moving a little bit more slowly. I mean, you often have these very large uh, uh, school districts with much older buildings that have you know poor ventilation, and I suspect that some of the moves that those school districts may make uh, pursuant to the, the guidance of their own health departments may may occur a little bit more slowly and tolerate a, a much a higher threshold for exposure risk. You know, or meaning you know, meaning meaning a you know they're they're uh, they're going to need to see much greater rates of declining transmission. Um, you know, to much lower levels, if you if you will, than other areas that can afford to take some risks as they move uh, kids back to normal.
0: And back again, back to what you talked about before, which is local um, uh, being exactly. so important.
1: Local decisions. And look, we, we sort of say, look, you know, we're not a health authority, but I think Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, our policy, but our leadership, I think it was time for other leaders outside of public health and the CDC to recognize uh, the moment we're in and to offer our own review of the data to help shape public perception um, as we move forward here to help folks move on uh, and, to, and to shift as quickly as Omicron has has led us uh, to shift in the way it's transpired across the United States.
0: Well, um, you know, to that end, Policy Lab and Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, which I love that acronym CHOP, uh, there's a marketer in there somewhere back there, um, have released uh, new guidance that's designed to help communities and families best navigate uh, this moment of uncertainty, transition, whatever you want to call that. And most importantly, uh, keep kids in school when we can. Uh, the first uh, piece of guidance, and this is one that you know continues to be uh, you know, talked about greatly, is on the issue of masking. Sure. So let's talk about that. What is the recommendation there? How do you see that changing anytime soon?
1: If you go back to our guidance from August, we widely recognize that at some point in this school year that schools were going to shift to more flexible mask optional policies uh, that would align with public health recommendations. I still think schools are required, um, it, you know, uh, for their school communities to, to inform them of, of what the public health recommendations are around masking, but that returning decisions uh, to individuals and families around the choice of whether to don them was going to be something that occurred during this year. And I think, you know, What we said in our guidance was to encourage the the use of indoor masking during a period of high transmission, and particularly while the hospitals were experiencing capacity challenges. That's now abating in some areas more quickly than others, and so we expect many schools to move into into mask optional policies over the next few weeks. And think that's uh, you know uh, think that this is a moment that they have have a window to do so. They're they're seeing. Very quickly declining transmission. They're seeing reduced hospitalizations, and they're seeing evidence of a milder spectrum of illness uh, for uh, for children in particular, but for most individuals, particularly uh, those who are vaccinated and boosted, if eligible.
0: Well, the second recommendation, at least part of it, seems very intuitive. You know, if you have symptoms, stay home. Uh, so that makes a lot of sense. But uh, I guess juxtaposed against that is you know the question of testing, and that's uh, something that. I think has been confusing um, because there's been a recommendation that if you have you know mild symptoms, you should be getting tested. Um, how do you true up the advice that people are getting on testing and and symptoms?
1: Well, again, it comes down to moving from an eliminate all exposure risk to just improve safety uh, strategy, right? And so, and being practical about that, we have to recognize that tests. Uh, you know, it, over the last few weeks have been largely unavailable to many people and outside of major testing programs. Now, we run one of the larger testing programs in the country for school-based testing, a, a program called Project ACET. We've actually uh, performed over 1 million tests now through our region since last January uh, among school staff and, and 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 kids. And so we follow these rates. And for a long time, we promoted assurance testing or, or weekly screening testing of particularly school staff, particularly among those who are unvaccinated, um, as well as uh, uh, testing in relationship to allowing kids who are exposed to remain in school. Uh, But as we begin to make this shift now and we recognize the moment has arrived to do so, it's not so clear why we need to chase asymptomatic or milder disease. While we were in high transmission, we were asking people to mask and that was a fairly strong mitigation layer and has remained a strong mitigation layer. But as the rates come down, um, you know, we're seeing fewer and fewer individuals who are positive in that testing. And we're sort of accepting and making that transition uh, to the understanding that we can't eliminate all risk. And um, and you know we have to start treating this like other seasonal infections for which we no, we don't routinely track milder illness or asymptomatic carrier states. And, there, and you know once we do so you can recognize that the, the strategy becomes pretty simple. If, you know, during a period of high transmission, continue your masking as that comes down and as your school switches to mask optional policies, those who are exposed may be asked to wear a mask uh, for a week and follow their symptoms. Uh, But besides that, besides encouraging individuals to get vaccinated and get boosted when uh, when eligible, which is the real intervention here, we're going to get these schools back to normal, and uh, you know there may be some moments where milder illness, like for a child in daycare, can help get that kid back into day, daycare sooner after they have a cold and recognizing if, if they don't have COVID illness. Um, but for the most part, we we can uh, think about testing now, moving back towards those who are most symptomatic or, or in need of seeking care.
0: And so, just you know, under the kind of circumstances that you outline, then you know that kind of required testing for asymptomatic students as we're moving past that.
1: I do. I do I do think that schools can retain the, the ability to offer tests to their school community, particularly for those who want to opt in. Like let's say you're an individual uh, or a student who has a health, a chronic health condition for which that weekly assurance testing reduces exi- you know, anxiety, um, or can help you plan around family members who may have other health conditions in terms of initiating earlier treatment decisions. But that's a much different footing than requiring all students or requiring all all staff to to have to uh, submit to to weekly testing. And I think that it kind of balances both sides, the needs for some people who make the choice to be informed and and need to be informed based on their own risk or their family's risk, and those who are willing to now take that next step towards normal.
0: And you mentioned masking too, and you have a, a term that I'm, I'm interested in finding out what does it mean, mask to stay policy, what is that?
1: Well, that's really just saying if you're someone who is truly exposed, let's say from a household member a, or a, at another event to someone who has COVID, um, mask to stay really says, particularly during a mask optional period, that we just ask you to mask up for a week while while you're in school to you know um, uh, just to kind of prevent transmission uh, to other individuals while case incidence is high. We don't require necessarily the testing. So test to stay is one level above that where you would offer testing uh, to those individuals. Uh, um, and so mask to stay is a more equitable solution because we recognized even our in our own testing program that not all schools were equipped with the tests nor uh, nor had the staff. Sometimes they would be equipped with tests, but did not have the staff uh, or the capability to be able to provide the testing at scale to allow, let's say, test to stay solutions or assurance testing solutions. So from an equity perspective, we're recognizing that the risk has gone low enough now that we don't need to require those and create a system of the haves and the have nots in terms of who has access to education.
0: All right. Well, lastly, um, and this is something that the AMA has obviously been strongly urging, and you mentioned as the key to everything here, vaccination boosters. You know, are you still encountering a lot of parents who are hesitant to vaccinate and boost their children? And is there anything, any advice you can give to pediatricians out there to say to these parents?
1: Well, I think a lot of those conversations have been most helpful at this point in the pediatrician's office, in terms, of, you know, and certainly my own experience. In my own office, I, I will say back in the fall, I was concerned because there was a Kaiser poll that had showed that a third of parents were going to immediately vaccinate their children, a third were going to wait, and a third were not going to do it. Uh, they were uh, unpersuadable. It was that middle third we tried to encourage them. I mean, even before Omicron, we knew this winter surge was coming. Don't let anyone fool you. I mean, the rates from the Upper Midwest uh, were fairly high moving through the fall, and this, you know, this was there was a predestination here with some level. Of a high seasonal transmission over the holiday season on the East Coast and in other areas out west. However, you know what I would say is now that we're on the other side of this, some people may perceive that Omicron has sort of naturally inoculated um, individuals. And I think I would be careful with that conclusion. Uh, you know, the spike protein, you know, the the virulence of this virus is very different than the earlier forms, and and the vaccinations protect against you know, illness with the more severe forms of COVID. And um, you, know, recognizing there's still some uncertainty around future variants, particularly coming off some of those older lineages like the Delta virus, I'm still in stro- strongly encouraging, as are my colleagues, our children to get vaccinated. We will do so as the infants arrive. Um, because, you know, still in our hospital, while we've seen less severe disease when I, you know, when we walk through our intensive care unit, The unfortunate stories we see are among those who are unvaccinated.
0: Uh, Well, I think that's a great message. Uh, Dr. Rubin, for physicians uh, who want to get more information on your forecasting model and COVID-19 school guidance, where should they look?
1: They can come to our website, www.policylab.chop.edu.
0: Excellent. Dr. Rubin, thanks so much uh, for being here and all the work that you and your team are doing. That's it for today's COVID-19 update. For resources on COVID-19, visit ama-assn.org slash COVID-19. Thanks for joining us today and please take care. Subscribe to other great AMA podcasts available wherever you listen to yours or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. Thank you for listening.